It's an absolute pleasure to have Chris Gennady join us from Wisdom Tree. He is global head of research uh, at that wonderful shop. And uh, we've had, we had the pleasure of having a great conversation with Chris at our Grizzle Battery Metals one-on-one conference. It was a great conversation about all things uh, in the value chain that is electric. Uh, if you didn't get a chance, please do uh, have a listen. It's available on pod and it's also available on YouTube. Chris, thank you for joining us. You're absolutely welcome. It's a pleasure to be here today. Thank you. Um, so, you, Scott, why don't I let you kick it off? Yeah, sure. So, Chris, you know, you're head of research. You manage a, a team of analysts at Wisdom Tree. I just kind of wanted to maybe dig into your guys' investment process a little bit, hear a little bit more about how you find ideas, how you uh, analyze the different companies that you invest in. Maybe you could just, you know, open up the Komodo a little bit for us and tell us about more about your investment process. Absolutely. At, at Wisdom Tree, we spend a lot of time focusing quite broadly across what we call it uh, the thematics universe. So one of the things we're doing is we're tracking the overall universe of different investment vehicles available to all investors. And when you do it that way, you start to see the common topics, things like artificial intelligence, cloud computing, cybersecurity battery or energy storage ideas. You, you see all sorts of different topics where we at Wisdom Tree, as well as other asset managers, have decided to enter and to launch different options for the end investor. And so what we're always trying to do is first to, to figure out what's that next topic. So we spend a lot of time thinking, you know, is something like quantum computing ready or not ready uh, to be an, an, an investable idea within an overall thematics family of different funds. Once you determine a topic, one of the things we then have to do is ensure that there's enough expertise. Sometimes what we do is we'll partner with experts, domain matter uh, areas in those particular funds. So for instance, in, cl in cloud computing, we might work with a venture capitalist. In cybersecurity, we might work with a specialist in cybersecurity. And then from there, we determine what are the most essential fundamentals to monitor. Sometimes it's revenue growth. Sometimes it's revenue exposure. It could be capital expenditure. It could be a mixture of different things. But at the end of the day, each thematic, in our opinion, needs to be pure play and needs to be exposed very much, very deeply to that particular topic. So it sounds like you have a top-down process where you start with the overall theme and then you make sure that it's ready for prime time, essentially, and then you'll have analysts dig in and find specific names that would make sense. Absolutely right. I like that uh, characterization. Gotcha. Yeah, and I like how you look at other products too to kind of keep an eye on what investors are looking at because that, that's another way to source just general themes as well and stay on top of, of everything because you know we know investment markets move quickly. The, the easiest thing, and you, you see it, and, and we're, we're no stranger to it at Wisdom Tree, is within a particular construct of a topic. So you might look at cybersecurity, and then you might look at the distribution of AUM across some of the different investment vehicles. And usually, you'll see one fund that's completely at the top of the list by a significant margin. And in most cases, you then compare the inception dates. And usually the biggest fund is actually the fund that was first. So in 
systematics or in anything in the exchange traded space. If you can be first to a big topic that then people actually want, that's the best thing that you can do in asset management because you, you almost create an ecosystem around your particular vehicle. Now, one of the other things you can do is you could say, okay, we feel so strongly and we're bringing such a degree of expertise that even though we're not the first ones to think of artificial intelligence, for example, or to think of assembling that strategy, we believe we can compete effectively against everything in that particular box. And sometimes it takes a bit longer because you have to prove your, your value add in each individual underlying case. It's more like hand-to-hand -hand combat, but you can still win that way as well. And you just have to really understand what you're trying to do. Were, were you trying to be first or were you trying to compete head-to-head -head with a, an array or a menu of other options? Yeah, so if you think you have a far superior product, it's worth playing the long game then. Uh, if, you, if you're not first. Exactly. And, and I guess the, the other part, I, just as a follow-on question to that, Chris, is um, do you, just the, the rush and obviously, you know, the competition to be the first, do you see, there must be a lot of ill-conceived um, universes for, to, to uh, reflect a theme that you see, you know, that you, in the rush to become first, that that opens up opportunities as well, I would assume, right? Like, like where, you know, the universe that, that the first, uh, that, you know, the first ETF has come out with isn't really a proper reflection of that theme. I, I could use cloud or not cloud computing, excuse me, uh, quantum computing as an example today where it's a fascinating topic for sure. Uh, I love looking into it. I, I never feel like I understand it after looking into it, but still it's, it's just such a fascinating topic and you just see so much potential down a runway of admittedly indeterminate length. But then if you were to say, for instance, today, Amazon Web Services has through their bracket platform a capability where a user, usually for research purposes, can go in and select somewhere in the range of, say, from five or six different quantum computing providers that are, that are fully accessible today. It's fully transparent. Anybody can look this up. And at the end of the day, you'd say, okay, because this is the case, is it appropriate to have Amazon in a cloud computing or quantum computing strategy, excuse, excuse me, uh, there. And you basically then would say, wait a second, how much revenue are they getting presently from quantum computing? Basically zero. And so that's the case at many of these, like IBM has an experimental quantum computer that people may be able to access. Microsoft is gonna have their version. Google is gonna have their version. The big cloud players are really ideal in the sense that through their platform, through the fact that they have a lot of cash and can make enormous investments, you can set up access points for all sorts of interesting different technology, quantum computing being one. But if you say, okay, I want to be exposed to this topic and not say search advertising, well, if you're investing in Alphabet, most of the revenue is still coming from search advertising. They have their moonshots, as we know. But it, it's still, it just in our opinion, a bit early. So what that does, I, I love, Tom, how you say, it creates an opportunity. Because if you see quantum computing strategies built that way, when the time comes that you can, with a more finely tuned uh, precision shot, take that shot, 
now they've left their flank open and you can really potentially clean up by telling a much better, much cleaner, much purer story uh, when uh, able to do so. That is a great, that's like an absolutely bang on example where, you know, I, you know, talking to many people, they're like, oh, I, I've got this. A, a great example uh, is, you know, like a metaphor, like it's just, it's just open to interpretation, right? And you have like a smorgasbord of companies and you're like, how does this all fit in, right? But, but again, to your point, exactly. it, it's, it really is something like uh, quantum computing. These are, these are just abs like, you know, it, it can span so far and, and you want, you want exposure to this factor, but again, you, you, you need to get to that granularity. It's great. Great way to put it. This, this is great advice yeah. for anyone listening. You, you, it does pay to do a little bit of digging in whatever fund you're in, just to make sure you're getting the exposures. I'd say to start, if you have the FANG stocks in your port in, in that fund, you should be skeptical and maybe just make sure that you're getting the exposures you want, right? Because a lot of funds just say, all right, we're, there's some tech theme. Let's throw the FANGs in there. There you go. It's like, well, that's not really what I signed up for. In, in, in a way, when we're designing the strategy, one of the things that we are tracking is sort of the degree of overlap to the main benchmarks. Because within the exchange-traded product space, the main benchmarks have tons of AUM. Usually, they have the lowest fees. On, on some platforms in some areas of the world, they even have zero fees. And so, if the end goal of the investor is something akin to the FANG stocks, essentially the biggest stocks that have driven the performance for the last 10 or 12 years of most broad benchmarks. You can easily do that. And you don't need one of the things I say in my presentations, you don't need to listen to me talk for 40 minutes if that's your end destination, because the NASDAQ 100 will do a great job of getting you heavily exposed, or, or maybe the MSCI World Information Technology Index or the S&P 500 Information Technology Index, whatever main benchmark you want, the FANGs are well covered. Uh, so usually when you're thinking of a thematic investment, you're thinking of something where maybe you still have that benchmark allocation, but now you're in the satellite of the portfolio and you're saying, I'm bringing in something totally different. You know, these are stocks that the NASDAQ 100 hasn't even found yet through their inclusion process. And that's why I'm bringing this in as part of my satellite exposure. Yeah, and that could really benefit people too. If it, 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 It's not a good game to play the, the index inclusion game, but that can drive returns of certain stocks. You look at a Tesla when they got added to the S&P 500. I don't think anyone can argue that didn't help the stock price uh, at one point with flows. So that's, that's an interesting point. Now, maybe we'll move on a little bit, Chris, because I know you're, you spent a lot of your time at the cutting edge of, of what's going on, and technology is a big piece of that. Maybe as as you we talk about what you're tracking in technology, could you maybe, uh, is there a certain topic that you think is, is really interesting or you're spending a lot of your horsepower, your team spending horsepower on that that you think people should, should be aware of? It doesn't have to be like a broader topic. It can be kind of a smaller, uh, nuanced uh, view on things. So... One of the things that we're particularly focused on at present uh, is cybersecurity. It's, uh, it's been quite a year for that in the sense that we're examining the impact of an economic downturn in a variety of ways. In each economic downturn, there, there are similarities and differences. And one of the differences of this economic downturn that we're seeing pretty much in every developed market country 
is the fact that inflation is, say, let, let's just uh, call a spade a spade. And say it's, it's a bit higher than we've been accustomed to for almost uh, 30 years in most markets. So you've got this inflation element. You've got central banks adjusting policy rates to deal with the inflation element, potentially causing or contributing to causing the economic slowdown on the other side. And then you've got these particular stocks. And what's interesting about cybersecurity is there's no company yet that I have seen that's saying, yes, I have to tighten my belt. And one way I'm going to do it is pay less for cybersecurity. Most technology budgets in cybersecurity are expanding, even if maybe the overall technology budget is declining. They're, they're maybe looking for uh, savings and how they're using their Amazon Web Services or Microsoft Azure or other cloud platforms. They're, they're looking for savings uh, in other areas, not starting certain new projects. But by virtue of the expanding attack surface and by virtue of the fact that this year we're also dealing with a Ukraine-Russia unique situation, and Russia historically has had certain, uh, let's, let's say, malware emanate where people probably remember 2017, the NotPetya uh, instance, and there, there wasn't even a war going on at that point in time, and they shut down significant portions of Kiev through this particular malware that then spread to certain other companies and countries around the world. And so you, you've got these factors aligning, telling us that cybersecurity is a very interesting topic at the present moment. So can I ask you, for the leading Chris, edge- Scott, could, could, I, could I ask one question just on that, that point itself? So Chris, just on that, with respect to just, I guess, you know, you you brought the prospect of war and you know how we you, you, obviously there's a traditional sense of war it does that add to the complexity like is this just the new layer we're talking about is as we see global conflicts before there was one you know there was one angle which was you know the traditional um, you know classic physical confrontation but now we're, we're seeing a multi-front and specifically that that, is, that adds to the, the complexity and specifically you, you know the the nature of of cybersecurity and how important it is in a time of conflict I, I think and and Tom it's, a, it's an excellent point and I think uh, text uh, and research and and various things are going to be written about the response in Ukraine in the sense that the Western world, uh, a lot of the NATO countries really came together with bringing certain resources to bear. A lot of the major cybersecurity companies and cloud providers uh, provided their infrastructure at extremely low cost, if not free, uh, to help out the particular efforts uh, and try to curtail the impact of a Russian cyber invasion. And, and in a sense, anyone thinking of a war in the 2020s or 2030s, uh, you, you hope they don't happen. But if they do happen, uh, you have to imagine in our connected world uh, in which we all live, the cyber element is always going to be there. And it, it, one of the greatest risks that could exist is you have these developed market countries that haven't updated their software, whether it has to do with water uh, whether it has to do with uh, electricity and power, that, that sort of key infrastructure that you really just can't live a normal life without, 
that stuff needs to be protected. What you usually see is the financial industry spends the most money of any industry in cybersecurity. And in a way, it makes sense because if you if you log into your bank account, you don't see the balance that you're supposed to see. Uh, we, we all know the emotion uh, that can be engendered. And we're, we're never going to want to work with that bank again if they can't get that particular thing done. But at the same time, that doesn't mean that the water treatment facilities the electrical facilities, other necessary infrastructure also shouldn't be as protected uh, to the extent possible. And what, what you've seen this year is it's been a year of transition where a lot of stuff was brought to the fore in terms of attention. There were certain attacks in different countries. Uh, they, they may not have gotten all the way through or created as, as nefarious uh, an impact as they could have. But in the end, uh, this, this war plus the awareness uh, has been very positive for cybersecurity, in our opinion. So does it feel like this is kind of a early where this is the year where people really realized how important cybersecurity is? So you may have some of those, you have the early adopters as usual, but then you have these these water treatment plants say, oh, we don't need to update our, our security, but now they see what's happening this year and they say, oh, maybe we need to start taking a look who who's the best provider for us. Absolutely. You've got different elements and and you're seeing the the companies like uh, your Toma Bravos of the world in in the private equity space uh, what they're seeking to do in a way is to help simplify the picture for the end client the end user because whether it's healthcare so ransomware targeted healthcare and education pretty extensively whether it's water treatment plants you you were faced with a very difficult marketplace in the sense that you would have to almost go item by item, putting it into your cybersecurity cart. You'd have to say something like, okay, what's the best identity software that I can use so my employees need to log in one time and they can access everything they're supposed to access? So it might be an Okta, it might be a ping identity, it might be something else. Then you'd say, okay, uh, does that help me with my email security? No, it doesn't. Okay, maybe then I have to go in and I have to say, okay, uh, maybe dark trace could be appropriate in that regard. And then if you're then saying, well, uh, now my employees are working from, from anywhere. I have a re remote first sale uh, process. Okay, uh, now maybe I need to speak to Zscaler. So there are so many different elements that need to be secured. And at the end of the process, a medium-sized, large-sized company might be dealing with 40 different tools that they then have to integrate and make sure are working correctly together. And you might hire a consultant who's an expert in cybersecurity to make sure those 40 different tools are working well together. And so when you see a Toma Bravo going out there, buying ForgeRock, buying SailPoint, buying Ping Identity, and creating almost an identity platform, uh, or at least you would hypothesize that might be what they're doing, you're saying, okay, they've got all of this capability and maybe the end user interacts with one point of contact and they get the benefit of all these different best of breed identity providers. And that's just one example. You might see further consolidation within the space. Yeah, so it's still still fragmented is what you're saying at this point, but some players are starting to yeah. try to roll up the industry. Yes. Now, could I ask you, as you look at the cutting edge of cybersecurity, is it really cloud-based? The companies that are doing the most interesting stuff are total cloud-native uh, solutions for someone, so you wouldn't need to install a CD or anything like that? Like, those days are long gone? 
I, I hope they're long gone because the computer I'm using here, uh, Scott, doesn't even have a, a CD or DVD drive. It's, uh, <laughs> it's it's crazy to to think it's not it's not that long ago that that's exactly how you would buy uh, your software. Uh, the cloud model, and that's really what it is at at the end of the day. Cloud itself is neither good nor bad. It's just a way in which the world, companies and individuals, are now deciding to consume and interact with software. And in the cybersecurity space, one of the biggest risks that you used to have is you would buy your, back back in the day when you had the CD, it might have been your Norton antivirus, uh, which, I, which I know still exists, Norton LifeLock. Uh, but you would then put the CD in and you would say, okay, I hope to God it's updated uh, appropriately um, because obviously it's not the old viruses that get you, it's those new ones that you haven't updated your system for. So in the cloud model, when these entities, these providers see something new on the internet, a bug fix, a virus fix, certain other things that help them aid in the recognition of these different types of attacks, now it can automatically be out. As long as you're paying your monthly or your yearly subscription, you've got your access and you've got your update and your software is good to go as long as the check keeps clearing at each uh, relevant time. So the cloud model is perfect for a lot of what these cybersecurity companies are seeking to do. Well, it sounds interesting. I mean, I, I'm sure there's a lot going on, but it, this is definitely a place I think investors should be watching cybersecurity. I, I've spent some time on some of the software as a service companies in that space, and they're doing very interesting things, kind of pushing the boundaries. So uh, yeah, that will definitely keep that on our radar. I did want to hit on uh, semiconductors, which we talk about critical infrastructure. In a digital, like in a rapidly digitizing world, semiconductors are critical infrastructure. It looks like the bloom has come off the rose a bit in the industry. Everyone was super hyped on NVIDIA and others because we just had a shortage of, of chips during the pandemic. Now demand is softening a bit. I'm wondering what your take is on semiconductors. Like, do you are you still worried about declining economic growth or there are fears of an oversupply overblown? Like, how, how are you thinking about the semiconductor industry? It's, it's a fascinating space. And something that I always force myself to think of first is between now and 2035, it is predicted that there are going to be in operation more than 1 trillion physical semiconductors doing various things. They could be in the car, they could be in the washing machine, the dishwasher, the cell phone, wherever. But you then say, what else in the physical world not necessarily the digital world, but the physical world, is there going to be a trillion of anything? Has there ever been a trillion of anything? That is a huge number. And that's sort of the, the highway that we are on and the journey that we are taking. And so the long-term picture of modern life as we know it cannot be lived without semiconductors. Now, what we've experienced is a bit unique in the sense that the pandemic sort of pulled forward and created a certain lumpiness in certain behaviors. One of those behaviors might have been buying a laptop or buying a new cell phone. Uh, and people can only buy so many laptops and so many cell phones and so many other devices. And if they do all of that spending in, say, 2020, when there's stimulus checks and they're stuck at home and they need to you know, upgrade the video game system or whatever the case may be, when you get to 2022, 
uh, and they've got a good setup and something that works, they really need to buy that additional laptop, that additional smartphone. And so the main thing that you tend to see as an impact of the downturn in economic conditions is, okay, all of those discretionary personal electronic purchases may not be trending as much in that upward direction year over year as they were in the immediate years prior to 2022. Now, in, in the end, that cycle is going to come back and semiconductors are nothing if not cyclical. But something I saw within the last week that I think is profoundly exciting is Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway made a 4.1 billion USD purchase of Taiwan Semiconductor, which is fascinating. First of all, because if you've followed Berkshire and the investments they make, not the biggest tech investor, uh, besides their huge $126 billion position or so in Apple as of their last filing. So Apple's a big position, but they're not necessarily known as a growth shop. They're known as a value shop, lots of oil, lots of old economy, railroads, those kind of things. And yet, in the third quarter, they just did the filings uh, and, and everything became made public, that, that position in Taiwan Semiconductor is very interesting and very notable because this in my opinion, is one of the most fascinating companies for many reasons. And the Inflation Reduction Act that the U.S. passed recently is contributing to certain new plant activities and investments that could be occurring as we speak in Arizona. And so as we look forward, there's a lot of interesting and exciting things happening in semiconductors, even if right now, yes, the year-to-date return in 2022 of most companies is negative, if not significantly so. Yeah, so you're, you mentioned a little bit about the supply chains. I, I'm hearing a lot about that. Do you have an opinion on if you think we really are, if supply chains are being reshuffled or if it's it's just too hard to make a real dent that these are like political um, grandstanding and saying, I'm going to open a plant, but is it really going to be meaningful capacity? Do you think kind of this whole thing with Russia and Ukraine and supply chains through COVID, has that reordered things where there is going to be some onshoring of semiconductors in the U.S. and, and around the world? It, it, it appears, based on what we can see today, that it's trending in that direction. But I'll tell you, in my opinion, the most important thing to watch, uh, if you look at a company like Taiwan Semiconductor, as those new plants in the U.S. or in other locations come online, you want to see to the extent you can as someone who doesn't work at the company, uh, what is the technology, meaning what are the distances between the nodes? Because if they're bringing their five nanometer, and that means five billionths of a meter, their, their four nanometer, eventually there'll be a three nanometer, the smaller the number, the smaller the distance between these transistor nodes on the particular chip, the more advanced the process technology, the more advanced the chip, the more efficient, the faster the chip. And so it, it says one thing, if they build a plant in Arizona and that plant is specializing in say 28 nanometer uh, process technology, which that would tell us, okay, those are far from the bleeding edge, important in certain applications, like maybe the automobile sector, but these chips, these are not the NVIDIA A100s that are banned from export to China. These are chips that can go in all sorts of things, but by themselves, they're pretty boring and pretty cheap. Now, similarly, if Taiwan Semiconductor unveils 
three nanometer process technology in Arizona, that is sending us a completely different signal. And it's telling us, wow, they're really bringing the best of what they've got to the United States. And in my opinion, that sends you a completely different signal. And ultimately, if they're willing to bring their best and most forward-leaning process technology to the United States, that sends a completely different signal. And you are, in that case, seeing a completely uh, reshuffled supply chain. These things take years in the sense that even if they've started construction on some of these plants and Samsung is doing some building, Intel is doing some building, Micron is doing some building. So it's not the case that you hear the announcement there's going to be some building and then you immediately have all your answers. It's more, okay, the plant's going to open in 2024. Uh, and then you see what type of transparency they're willing to give you in terms of what process technology is being used in that particular plant. So it could be some years yet before we know every detail. I look for articles wherever I can. Uh, but by and large, to me, that's the main signal. Are you getting true access to bleeding edge technology outside of Taiwan? If so, that's a big signal. Now, I have a question for you. Is there a complementary process to do that, too, where you can look at the big customers of bleeding edge chips, too, like an Apple? If Apple really starts buying transistors for its cutting edge iPhones from a U.S. manufacturer, could that kind of give you the same type of signal? They're moving away from China, for example. It's, it's an interesting statement, Scott, because essentially the interesting thing about the semiconductor space is if Apple for its M1 sort of series, because I know they have uh, various chips that are in the iPhones, various chips that are in the different, depending which laptop you buy, different uh, options, how much you're willing to pay. Uh, you don't have a second option in the sense that if Taiwan Semiconductor can give you high reliability on five nanometer process technology, Intel is not there yet. So you cannot say, well, I'm going to shop it against Intel and see what can't, can't be done. Um, you know, can you go to global foundries? Eh, not, not easily. Uh, so what Taiwan Semiconductor did when they initially set up their firm, that's pretty unique, is they basically said, we're going to specialize in the process. And we're going to build for all sorts of different clients. We, we don't, there's not really a brand of chip called Taiwan Semiconductor because they will just build the NVIDIA chips. They will build, as you said, the Apple chips. They will build all these different chips for all these different providers, but they don't really have their own lineup. Whereas a Samsung clearly has its own lineup, its own economic incentives, uh, different from any client that they're manufacturing for. Intel is... Intel's been trying to do a lot of things. The CEO of Intel gets a ton of attention these days. The business results of Intel also get a ton of attention, but in the negative direction these yeah. days. Uh, AMD gets a lot more positive attention. Uh, Global Foundries even gets a lot more positive attention. So Intel is having some issues. Uh, and at the end of the day, as yet, Taiwan Semiconductor really does not have a clear sort of uh, substitutable competitor, which is another one of the, the problems geopolitically that everyone is aware of, because you say, okay, if China did a blockade of, say, the island of Taiwan, uh, that would be a big issue. And we wouldn't be able to immediately deal with the fact that we can't access those bleeding edge chips. Eventually, you, you find a solution as the human race always does. But 
it, it would take probably a few years before you could get back up to that level of capability because building these plants, like I said, it takes multiple years and, and you have to figure out all, all the different uh, kinks. So that's sort of the unique, I, I didn't know this before I dove into the semiconductor space that there's really not that many companies that can physically make the chips number one and then make them at the bleeding edge. It's really Taiwan Semiconductor and almost no one else. Well, so it sounds like, yeah, it, they are really the canary in the coal mine. You got to just watch what they're doing. It's You can't necessarily find a, a customer, for example, that is going to give you the same signal. Exactly right. The, the main thing as well that you see is there are certain ASML in Europe, uh, certain companies like Cadence and Synopsys uh, in the United States, Mentor. Uh, there, there are certain sort of key technologies that are absolutely essential that Taiwan, that Taiwan Semiconductor taps into to actually assemble these different ships. Uh, there are certain unique pieces of equipment that can only be purchased in one or two places globally. And this is really what you see the U.S. doing in the sense that when the U.S. is restricting access uh, of, of China to certain areas, they can do a very effective job because there isn't that second option. Not only is there not a second option to go to if you're a customer needing some chips made, but if you're a Taiwan semiconductor, you really only can get certain equipment from ASML and nowhere else, or you can only get certain tests done at Cadence or Synopsys. Uh, and nowhere else. And so because of that fact, uh, it allows the U.S. government to restrict access to certain technologies that then make it not impossible, but much, much more challenging for China to have its own lines of bleeding edge chips. We predict eventually they will get there if they're committed. It's just you're talking about something that took multiple decades to do the first time around. And so money by itself does not immediately get you capable of what Taiwan Semiconductor is doing. Yeah, it's not that easy. Incredible. Chris, this is like, yeah, this is such a great conversation. And we, we've, you know, I think we've had, I think what we need to do is we, we need to, because I think this is the amount of time we need to devote to those key two topics. And I, I know we wanted to touch on software, but why don't we, like, I think we want, let's devote real time to, to, you know, that. And then we obviously, you know, do another check-in on battery metals. But Chris, thank you. Like, this has a, been a phenomenal download of, of great insights, guys. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Chris. This thank you very much. It's great. always a pleasure. Appreciate it, and and uh, you know uh, we'll we'll hope we'll see you in future uh, future Grizzle conferences as well, and you know as they pop up in in the new year. But uh, let's uh, you know let's touch base again on on uh, on all of these uh, ideas. Excellent. Look forward to it. Thanks, Chris. All right, everyone. That was Chris Gennady. He's head of research at Wisdom Tree.